of their money. This is a real danger that we cannot overlook. That if we get to a place in our lives where we love money more than God, we will end up in eternal destruction. Jesus said, you can't love God and money. You have to choose. So, you either love one and hate the other, or you hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot love God and mammon, or God and money. And, and Paul is completely consistent with Jesus on that. that. That if we make that our life's goal, we will end up in destruction and perdition. And so we Christians need to be especially on guard against the temptations to love money. Now remember, money itself is not the root of all evil. That's often misquoted. But the rest of the text says the love of money is the root of all evil. So money can be used properly and should be used properly and should be used to God's glory. God made it for our good and and to be used in that way. But the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. And so we need to be on guard and put up barriers in our hearts from pursuing money to the exclusion of God. Now, when we hear words like that, we might get the wrong impression that that pursuing wealth at all is wrong. So anybody who is going after money is is ungodly. We might get the idea that a richer that the richer a person is, the more ungodly he is. So yeah, you know, I know him. He's rich, and so he must be ungodly. And so we we might even as Christians have our our radars up, you know, for those wealthy Christians. And just think, you know, well, because they're wealthy, they must be immature and godly. They must love money. And that's a, a false assumption and really not a fair assumption. We have to be careful that we don't become more godly than God in the sense that my systematic theology professor used to say, you can't become more Christ-like than Christ. You know, if God told us that it's okay to use money and that even Jesus used money, then we, we have to be careful to all of a sudden put everybody who's rich in the category of ungodly or unbelieving. Instead, we need to see what the Bible says about wealth and about wealthy people. And, and what the Bible calls for with regard to wealthy people is not that they turn into some kind of communist in the sense that they have to, everybody has to give their money to the commune and, and then spread it out equally. The Bible never calls for that. Instead, the wealthy believer ought to use his money wisely and, and submit himself to the Scriptures. And so he's already made the warning against the dangers of wealth, the dangers of pursuing wealth to the exclusion of God. But Paul here shows Timothy that, that wealth should be actually a means to express our godliness. So if we're in a position where we have money, then we ought to use that as a way to express our godliness. We could put it this way. The wealthy must be godly in their use of wealth. And it's possible to do that. The wealthy can be godly in their use of wealth. And their pursuit of wealth, absolutely. And so we need to, to kind of balance both of those extremes. You know, people who go after money are, and to the exclusion of God, they are evil. But there's actually these people who go after money who do it to the glory of God. And, and there's a proper way to, to do that. So let's look at our text here, chapter 6, beginning in verse 17. This is the word of God. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, 
storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. So in these three verses here, Paul is saying that wealthy believers must be humble. Wealthy believers must be humble. Humble. Paul begins with a couple of prohibitions to wealthy believers, saying what they should not do with money. And then, then he gives some positive exhortation about what the wealthy should do with their money. And we could summarize it by saying the wealthy believers must be humble. And when they are, they will be rewarded by God. Humble, wealthy believers will be rewarded by God. And what we need to recognize is that being humble and being wealthy are not mutually exclusive. You could actually be both. Paul's saying, when you are, you'll be rewarded by God. So first, verses 17 and 18. Wealthy believers must be humble. Wealthy believers must be humble. Humility is expressed in a proper focus towards three things. First, a proper focus towards others. Notice what the text says. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited. So Paul here tells Timothy to pass on these instructions. So remember, Paul's talking to Timothy. He's saying to pass these on to the Ephesian church. And he's saying, you need to let these wealthy believers know that they must not be conceited. Notice he doesn't tell them having a lot of money is evil. Tell them to give up all their money. He doesn't say that. He doesn't tell them that they must give all their money to the church so that everyone can have an equal lifestyle across the board. He doesn't say that. Instead he says... Make sure you're not conceited. Have a proper view of yourself and others. Not, not having an improper confidence in, in yourself. Because, hey, after all, I've, I've made this money for myself. That's the temptation for the rich, isn't it? When they look at their monetary value, their net worth, they think that, you know, this is a direct expression of who I am. This is... This is showing that I am superior to my counterparts. There's a natural pride that comes from having money that that we must guard against. I mean, consider the rich young ruler and the disciples' question after that. They said, he turned away because he was sad. He said, I couldn't give up my money. And and, And the disciples said, well, then who can be saved? If the rich man can't be saved, then who can? Jesus said, In other words, what they're asking is, if the man who has the clearest sign of God's blessing, see, this is what we think just naturally or from maybe even a secular perspective, we kind of look at people and say, if somebody's wealthy, God must be pouring his blessing on them. And, And that's the way the disciples saw the rich young ruler. God must be pouring his blessing on him, and so Jesus is turning him away? What does that say about us? How can we be saved? Jesus says it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom... Or it's easier for eye of a cam- or for a camel to go to the eye of the needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And, and the disciples are saying, then how can we possibly be saved? And Jesus' answer, remember, is with man, it's impossible. So in other words, it's impossible for anyone to get saved on their own. But with God, all things are possible. So we all have the opportunity to be saved through Christ. So whether you're rich or poor, you can still be saved. That, that was not Jesus' point, that the rich can't be saved. He was just saying, if this guy who has the seeming clear symbol of, of God's blessing can't be saved through his own works, then you can't either. And isn't that the, what the world does with money? They, they are conceited with 
their levels of money that they have attained. It's a constant measuring stick for them as to how they are doing in life. I mean, think about the Forbes 400 list where everyone's jockeying for position to see where they rank among the richest in America. And frankly, who cares? I I went through the list as I was just looking through this, and frankly, there are a lot of billionaires on that list. And you know, I only knew about five of them. I mean, who even knows these people? And some of these people are self-made billionaires. You know, they came from nothing. But many of them inherited a huge fortune and simply didn't squander it. So what are we supposed to say about these people? Are we supposed to worship them or say that they have some higher status than everybody else? What they all need to recognize is that no matter who has money, all wealth is from God. Same thing is true here with us as well. And, And humility is seeing God for who He is, that God is the giver and provider of all that we have, and therefore we must not boast in our money. We must, the text says that they must not be conceited. So if we are in a position where we make plenty of money, then we must not boast in that, as if it's my accomplishments, it's my ingenuity. So we need to have a proper view towards others, you could say proper views towards ourselves. Secondly, we must have a proper view towards money. And we see that in the middle of the verse. Not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. So don't fix your hope on money. The first temptation for a rich Christian is to put confidence in themselves, to be conceited. The second temptation is to put confidence in their money. And humility demands that we put our confidence in the right place. Notice how the prohibition is stated, not to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. Do you see the irony here? Don't place your hope, confidence, or certainty, don't place your certainty in what is uncertain. Suppose that a wealthy person came to you and asked for advice as to where he should put his money. And you told him, put all your money in the lottery. Do you think he would take your advice? No, because the lottery is known for always winning. I mean, obviously they have payouts, but most people are losing their money in the lottery because it's a, it's a long shot. I mean, you get the, the more money that you're trying to win, the more of a long shot it is. And frankly, to invest in anything, not just the lottery, but anything, carries with it some uncertainty because we don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. And that's the crazy reality of money. It is, it is foolish to put our certainty in that which is uncertain. And we, we need to remember what the rest of Scripture reminds us about money. The Lord told us in Luke 12:15 that our life does not consist in the abundance of our possessions. Proverbs 23, 4 and 5, Do not weary yourself to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it. When you set your eyes on it, it's gone. For wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle that flies towards heavens. The, the heavens. Has that ever happened to you? Kind of had your money, your, your, your eyes set on the wealth, and you're like, this is going to be there when I need it, and all of a sudden it takes wings and it's gone. A quick repair, a huge doctor's bill, a replacing of some major appliance or something, and it's gone. That's the nature of money, isn't it? It's uncertain. Ecclesiastes 5, 18-20, maybe we want to save up our money so that one day we can pass it on to someone else. Listen to 
the preacher in Ecclesiastes 5. He says, Here's what I've seen to be good and fitting, to eat, to drink, and enjoy oneself in all one's labor, in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him, for this is his reward. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he also has empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. For he will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. So God gives riches to one, and the next thing you know, it's gone. He toils all of his life. He passes off to someone who's a fool and is gone. It's the nature of money, that it's uncertain. Matthew 6, 19-21, Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. So our money is never secure. It is never completely certain on earth. But instead, store up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. Where, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Those who put their confidence and security in their riches are, are, are frankly left without hope when it's taken away. Have you ever heard stories about that? I mean, that kind of stuff happens all the time, especially around a city that has casinos. People put all their confidence in this, this potential to get wealth. They lose it all, and what happens? Their hope goes with it. And you, you hear stories of suicide and, and all sorts of other tragedies that go along with their, their money fleeing away from them because that was where their hope was. So Paul says... Have a proper focus of yourself and others by not being conceited if you're a wealthy believer. Secondly, have a proper view of money. Don't think that it is your security blanket or that it's going to get you anything. Recognize where it comes from and how fleeting it is. Third, we must have a proper focus or a proper view towards God that we need to trust in Him alone. So there's the two negative ones. Don't be conceited. Don't fix your hope on the uncertainty of riches. But, and we can include these words, but fix your hope on God. That's the idea there. She's saying in contrast to fixing your hope on the uncertainty of riches, fix your hope on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. So instead of putting confidence in yourself, because you're the one who built up this huge nest egg, or to put confidence in your money, instead of doing that, rich believers must put their confidence in God. And here's the great advantage of doing that. If you put your confidence in God to the exclusion of money, what happens when your money is taken away from you? What happens when your money is all gone? So you don't lose hope in life, do you? Because your hope's still on God. I mean, obviously, we don't want to get to a place of complete abject poverty. But even if we were there, couldn't we still have hope in life? And that's the point. Don't put your money on that which is fleeting because when it goes away, you can still have hope, confidence in life that God is there. The reality of wealth is is that it is not inherently evil, but there's something much greater to put your hope on and that you ought to put your hope on. Notice how the text describes it. God gives for us to enjoy uh, all things richly to enjoy. He richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. He God has given us gifts to enjoy for His glory. This clearly opposes the ascetic mindset 
of the false teachers. Ascetic meaning the monk style life. You know, like I have to be self-denial. I have to be miserable in life. So the more miserable I am, the more godly. You think they have to go around life like this all the time. But God here, we know from this text, is that He's actually created all these things that He's given in life to enjoy. And they will be enjoyed when they are used according to God's purposes. So, take for example, a sexual relationship between a man and a woman. God has given that for us to enjoy, but within the context of His requirements, right? Within the marriage relationships. We do it outside, it's not for us to enjoy. It's not to His glory. Same thing with money. You know, we, God has given us money richly to enjoy. Enjoy your money. Enjoy what your money buys. That's fine. Do it to God's glory, though. It's, you have boundaries in which you can enjoy your money. If it now becomes your God, you can't live without it, you, you uh, are constantly thinking about it, then it has become your idol, and at that point it has opposed God. So, so there's a proper way to give glory to God, to honor God in the use of your money. So humility is expressed in a proper focus, not on myself or, or my money, but it's a proper focus on God. Secondly, humility is expressed in a charitable outlook. Verse 18, humility is expressed in a charitable outlook. So the next instruction that he gives to Timothy is to instruct them, talking about rich believers, rich in this present world, if you go back up to verse 17, instruct those who are rich in this present world to do good. There's one. Second, to be rich in good works. And then... Third, to be generous and ready to share. Those last two kind of go together, so I'm going to put those together as well. So first, do good. This verse answers the question, how do the wealthy fix their hope on God? So we could say, okay, well, yeah, I, I understand in principle. I don't want to be conceited. I want to put my trust in money. I want to fix my hope on God. So what do I do? And the answer is these three things. Do good, do good works, and be generous. There you go. That's what a healthy outlook looks like for a rich believer, a wealthy believer in this present world. This first one, do good, is a general command to do good and not evil, obviously. second one is to do good works. There's not much difference here between doing good and doing good works, but, but we could say that the good works are the expression of the goodness. So if I'm doing good, what does that look like? Well, it it's actually shows itself in good works. Well, what does that look like? What is good works look like from a wealthy believer. And I would say that wealthy Christians ought to convert their cash into good works. So what can I do with my money that would actually turn into a good work? Not buy a good work. That's not what I'm saying. Not buying penance or anything like that. But how can I use my money to accomplish something good for God's program? And think about what Christ did with his Riches, so to speak, from 2 Corinthians 8 9. The riches of Him being the glorious God of eternity. 2 Corinthians 8 9 says that He, though being rich, became poor for your sake, so that you, through His poverty, might become rich. So, how can I enrich somebody? Obviously, we're not going to, I'm not talking about us laying down our lives, um, sacrificing ourselves for them on the cross. It's not our job. That was Christ's. But, but I think with regard to money, it is how can I enrich someone else with the use of my money if I'm in a position where I have more than I need? That's, that's the idea. How can I give up some of my riches in order to do good to someone who is in need or someone um, 
who, who just need some encouragement some way. So number one, do good. Number two, do good works. And then number three, these last two I think go together, be generous. Um, be generous and be ready to share. So this, the, the first two have to do with action. Do good, do good works, so do something. Here it's be generous. It's more of a disposition, isn't it? Obviously it's going to express itself in doing something, but, but it's a disposition. I want to, with my money, not be stingy and like we talked about on Sunday, tight, or, or Wednesday, tight-fisted with my money. Instead, I'm willing to share. Do you see that in the text there? Ready to share. If you're going to have a disposition of generosity, then you, you need to see yourself in, your, in the proper light. See yourself not as the owner of your money, not as the source of your money, but as the manager, right? Everything belongs to God and everything comes from God, and so I'm simply God's steward. I'm his manager. So I happily give up money that doesn't belong to me. It belongs to God. Give it to someone else who also belongs to God. A manager recognizes that, that, that he operates on behalf of the owner, and therefore he's not acting on his own behalf. I'm not acting unilaterally like, ah, oh, this is all my money, and I'm going to do with it whatever I want. I earned it. I deserve it. I can do with it whatever I want. Instead, it is, God, oh, this is your money. It's in my bank account, but it's your money. And I'm going to do with, with it what you want. So what, what kind of responsibilities do I have with my money? To take care of my family, to give to the church, to give to others in need? What, what kind of responsibilities do I have? And the point in all of this is that the rich are not to, to accumulate money just to use it on themselves, but instead they are to accumulate, there's no problem in accumulating, but to use their money for God. And they do that by using it for good works. So humility is a proper recognition who God is, who I am in relationship to God. And it's expressed in a proper view of myself, others, money, and God, having a proper focus. And then it's also expressed in a charitable outlook. Do good, do good works, and be generous. And the result is, verse 19, that those wealthy believers who are humble with their use of money will be rewarded by God. Now, what's, what if they don't do this? What if wealthy believers are stingy and they're using their money for themselves only? Well, verses 9 and 10 say that that they will be plundered. They will wander away from the faith, faith and pierce themselves through because they've gotten to a point where they've turned money into their God. So we have that negative warning. Don't do that because you will turn astray from God. You will turn away from God. Now the positive reason for wealthy believers to use their money well is found in verse 19. The first positive reason is that humble, wealthy Christians create treasure for themselves. Humble, wealthy Christians create treasures for themselves. Now, this sounds self-serving, doesn't it? But actually what he's saying here is that those who are rich towards God are actually rich towards themselves. They are storing up for themselves treasures for the future. Look at the first part of verse 19. So when you're generous and ready to share, when you have that disposition, you're doing good works with your money, then verse 19 says, you will store up for yourself the treasure of a good foundation for the future. 
This is consistent with what Jesus said. We don't store up treasure for ourselves here on the earth, but we're trying to, 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 to send our money on ahead of us because that's where there's no thieves that break in and steal that treasure. When we're storing up for ourselves treasures in heaven, there's no moth or rust that will corrupt those treasures. And I love what Paul's doing here. He's using language that a rich person could identify with, right? He's saying, do you want a good return on investment for your money? What if I told you, if you put your money towards the use of God's program, then you could actually store up for yourselves eternal treasures. What if I turned your money into an eternal treasure, one that can't be taken away when you die or that stays here, but it actually goes on ahead of you? How about that for a return on investment? This is it, friends. Here's the best return on investment that you could ever get. Use your money for God. Because then you will receive eternal treasures. Imagine that you worked your entire life to accumulate wealth and possessions for yourself and your family. What happens to it all when you die? Listen to the preacher again in Ecclesiastes 2, 18 and 19. I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun, for I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool. Yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor for which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun. This too is vanity. Saying, listen, if I spend all my time and my resources and my energy and my thoughts trying to figure out how to build this huge nest egg for myself. What happens when I die? It goes on to someone else. What happens if that turns out that person turns out to be a fool? All this work that I did my whole life is gone. What Paul is saying is, listen, how about making your life have eternal uh, returns? How about investing in something that can never be taken away or never be foolishly squandered? That's the best way for us to use our money. Those who are generous create eternal treasures for themselves. Secondly, those who are generous live life to the fullest. The last part of the verse says, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. This verbal phrase, take hold, is parallel to really the same verbal phrase that you find in verse 12. Take hold of eternal life, which is why I think this is talking about eternal riches, not okay, you do these things for God in this life, then God's going to richly reward you in this life with finances. That's not always going to be the case. But I think what Paul's saying is, you use your physical money for God's purposes in this life, then you can, you can be guaranteed that in the next life you will have eternal treasure. And that's this life indeed. The reason that the storing up should take place is so that the, the rich will cling to what's the most important. See, when we store up for ourselves treasures in heaven, we're actually clinging to what's most important. Something that won't fade away. So that's why I say this life indeed has to be referring to future eternal life because Paul apparently is talking about eternal treasures. The humble, wealthy believer doesn't put his confidence in riches And so, with regard to his money bags, he gladly releases his grips, his his grip 
of those money bags and uses it for God's purposes. A couple principles to consider. Number one, something that you've probably thought of before, but just a reminder to you that you're spending, how you spend your money is a barometer of your faith. How you spend your money is a barometer of your faith. It's a good indicator of where your heart is. Jesus said this, right? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So if your treasure is in heaven, you're going to be investing. I want an eternal return. If your treasure here is on the earth and your retirement or on giving a good amount of money to your children as an inheritance, then that's where your heart is. It's, it's on building this empire, kind of. So make sure that your treasure is in the right place. Make sure that your money is not the source of your strength and confidence and hope. Make sure that you use money as a tool for God and don't allow money to use you. Don't allow money to be an idol that opposes God and those who recognize the goodness of God and giving His greatest treasure of Jesus so that you could be a part of His family will gladly release their grip of their resources in order to use it for His glory. So, I would just recommend to you that if you haven't done this, just take, a, take stock of how you spend your money. So maybe you keep a budget, you, keep, you know all the places you spend your money. Just look over the last month, the last six months. I mean, the, the, the technology on the credit cards is very easy to look up how much you spent over the last year. I can look the last two years, how much I spend. They give me totals on categories. Gas, food, you know, entertainment, all that stuff. Just take stock of, of how you spent your money. That will be a good indication of where your heart is. But maybe you don't keep very good track of where your money is. And, and I would say just take the next week or month. Just keep all your receipts and then, and then uh, take a look at them. And, and maybe look at your checkbook, you know, if you're giving to the church, to include that in there. See, okay, what percentages am I giving to various things? And, and if, if all of my focus is on one thing that's passing away and that 5, 10, 20, 50 years from now doesn't really matter, maybe my focus is in the wrong place. Maybe my giving for the purposes of God and, and helping those in need is, is kind of this small in comparison to this huge amount that I spend. When it should be maybe like this or this. Or for some of you, you know, this. How little can I live on and still, still help other people? You know, um, sometimes we, as we get rich, we, we have to move up our lifestyle with the amount of money that we get. But what if we actually stayed at our former manner of living and had more money now to give to God's work and to God's people? Your spending is, spending is a good barometer of your faith. Secondly, having a love of money is not a sin. I've already mentioned this a couple of times here, and I've, I'm sure I've mentioned it before. Wealth itself is not a sin. But recognize the great weight of responsibility that you have if you have wealth. So if you have an abundance, you, I'm not saying, you know, on the 400, Forbes 400 list, but, but you have more than you need. And you have a great responsibility to use it rightly, godly. John Calvin wrote that a man's opportunities to do good to others increase with the abundance of his riches. 
as God supplies you with financial resources, you have greater responsibility to do good to others. So do good. Do good works. Be generous. Ready to share. And the only way that these expectations or expressions, I should say, will describe you is if you have what verses 17 and 18 are talking about. You have a humble outlook on life. You view yourself in the proper light. You view money as not as something that uses you or something that you are living for, but as something that you use as a tool in order to accomplish God's purpose. God is my owner. God is the owner of my money. God is the owner of everything I have. So I'm going to do my best to to leverage myself and my money for the use of His glory in this church and and in the lives of believers. So if you are gifted with more money than, than you need, then use your money for God's purposes. If you're not rich, you know, if you're just barely getting by, then can I say to you, don't despise wealthy believers. They are not inherently evil. Well, there's some that just give a bad name to the rest of them. But but there there is such a thing as a godly, humble, wealthy believer. And, and that ought to be the case. And so don't just automatically put them in the category of immature, irresponsible, and, and or maybe not irresponsible, but, but um, conceited, and, and all they care about is, their, is themselves. There's nothing inherently wrong with them just because they have money. There's nothing inherently sinful about building an organization or earning money or trying to advance in the company. You know, my boss told me he, I'm in line for, for a promotion, but, you know, I'm not taking it. Because I need to be miserable and mourn and weep. Miserable, mourn, and weep. Um, there's nothing inherently sinful about building an organization or earning money. So, so can I just say that, that even if you're in a position where, well, this message is nice, but this is not for me. If you're in a position where you're constantly in squalor and, and, um, and constantly trying to figure out how to make ends meet, can I just say to you, be humble yourself in recognizing that there are godly, wealthy believers who are seeking to do good and are doing good, and often they don't make a big show of it. That's the thing. You might know them for, you know, wait a second, they got a bigger house than I do. But but the the godly, wealthy believers that I know, they don't make, make a big show about it. They're all about staying below the radar, helping out people, um, when the need comes up and happy not for anyone to ever know besides that person or God himself. God has given even for us money richly to enjoy and so we must enjoy it. But we must do it according to his purposes. Let's pray. Father, your grace is sufficient for us and uh, we, we live in a society that is, um, in comparison to the rest of the world, frankly, we are rich. And we have plenty. And there are all sorts of um, cultures and, and um, countries around the world that are, have people that are um, being um, abused uh, by the government and having things taken away from them. And, and they are finding it difficult to find a job and, and we're here with our cars and our air condition and, 
and all the great pleasures and luxuries that we enjoy and, and calling ourselves poor when, in fact, in comparison to most of the world, we are we are have received much beyond what we need. And so, Lord, we, we may think that this message is for other people and people not in our church, but, but frankly, there's all kinds of application that we can use for ourselves. And so help us not to build up for ourselves treasures here on the earth where they can be destroyed and, and taken away, but, but to have the best return on investment for our money. We can't take anything with us, but we certainly can send money on ahead of us. And so would you help us to have the proper perspective of ourselves and our money and of you? We want to fix our hope on you so that when things are taken away, when, when things are at the, their greatest, when we are just overwhelmed with a great amount of money, that we still are fixing our hope in you. It doesn't matter if we have $100,000 or negative or 1000 our hope is in you. So give us strength to keep our eyes fixed on you and to trust both your, both your negative prohibition or negative warning that, that if we love money to the exclusion of you, if we, um, if we do that, we will plunge ourselves into many griefs and, and head on towards perdition and destruction. But if we invest our money for eternity, eternity then we will um, receive an eternal reward. It cannot be taken away. And that's our confidence tonight. Lord, help us to be wise with our use of money as individuals and as a church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.